Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm John. And we are hosting the Pioneer Park Podcast, where we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the most innovative and forward-thinking creators, technologists, and intellectuals. We're here to share our passion for exploring the cutting edge of creativity and technology. And we're excited to bring you along on the journey. Tune in for Dr. Broken Conversations with some of the brightest lights in Silicon Valley and beyond. Welcome to today's episode. I'm Brian, and this is John. And today we're joined by Vivek, an AI researcher at Google, who has been working on translating AI and adapting AI to usage for clinical medicine. He's the co-author on a recent paper from Google about MedPalm, which is an adaption of the Palm model from Google to the domain of medicine. We're looking forward to talking to Vivek about all the ways that these models are powerful and useful in select domains like medicine and also their limitations. So we're looking forward to talking about spoonerisms, confabulation, and hallucination, and how all of these words apply for the purposes of AI. Vivek, welcome. Hi, Brian. Hi, John. Excited to be here. And yeah, talk all things AI and medicine. Cool. Yeah, welcome. So Vivek, just to sort of ground your background, you did your undergrad in India, then you went to UT Austin, and then you came out to the Bay Area after finishing your master's degree. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Cool. I think we may have overlapped in Austin. I lived there for a number of years. I miss Austin a lot of the time, but I'm curious to hear about your own sort of migration gradually as you made your way west to California. Yeah, I think Austin's a beautiful little city. And I think, Ryan, you wouldn't disagree with me if I say that. I think the school UD Austin adds to the charm as well. And for me, it was like coming from India, which is a warm weather place, moving straight to Texas and Austin, which was equally warm, was good. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed the scenery over there. It was a very welcoming environment, I would say, for graduate students. And I was also transitioning my major from building electronics, more hardware stuff to more computer science and AI. And at that time, felt like a very good place to be in had a number of good professors who were doing some amazing research in natural language processing, computer vision, graphical models, and robotics as well. So yeah, I really enjoyed my time over there. Awesome. And you found yourself now working at the absolute frontier, I think, of artificial intelligence at Google. Tell us a little bit about how your experience, how did you find your the application of interest or this domain of medicine? What kind of drew you to it? It's a funny story because even before deep learning, like when I was doing my undergrad back in 2010, 2011, in the final year of my undergrad, we were asked to do like thesis projects or pitch ideas. And the idea that I pitched together with my team was actually an AI doctor. And at that point of time, deep learning wasn't a common term. It wasn't invented. Uh, so my presentation decks all had support vector machines and all those kind of things. But I still believed in the potential of that technology because it was very clear that if we did not have tech and AI scaling up medicine, we are not going to be able to scale world-class healthcare to everyone. It was quite obvious to me even back then. And especially coming from a place like India where the medical facilities aren't the greatest, it's it's getting there. There's been massive improvements in the, over the last decade, but reaching the, the remote villages and towns is still a huge challenge, I would say. And it felt very natural to me that tech and AI would be the place to be. And so at the back of my mind, I think that was always a place that I wanted to work in. And obviously, I had a huge interest in machine learning and AI back then. I remember back in undergrad, we didn't have the best of internet connections. So whatever bandwidth I could secure, I would download these courses from this Caltech professor, Yasser Abu Mustafa, and learn about machine learning. And it wasn't taught in our curriculum back then. So it was all on the sidelines, but that grew, that drew me into the field. And so... When I came for my master's, it was I wanted to take as many machine learning courses as possible. And when I 
joined the industry full time again i wanted to do machine learning and yeah, i got really fortunate that as soon as i came out of grad school and went over to facebook it was when facebook ai research was started and i got this incredible opportunity to work right at the intersection of research and product so i had this nice role where i could take the latest and greatest models from fair and put it into production i learned a ton over there so it involved like learning all these machine learning frameworks at that point of time torch and cafe not easy to use by any means but it was fun and getting them into products with like, millions of users that was incredible learning and like when you work at that low level you learn all the details of these models both at training time both at inference time and you're learning about optimizing and so that was it was lucky for me in the sense that i got this opportunity as someone who was a relative nobody just had taken a few courses I did not have a phd but that just set me up back in 2014 2015 and since then yeah i would say i just have been very fortunate to work at uh, the frontier of ai and deep learning since then it's awesome yeah and so you got to work at both facebook and google how are the cultures of those two companies different and how would you describe them both yeah it's a great question i think the answer that i would give with respect to facebook is also kind of outdated because when i was at facebook it was still like you know a few thousand employees fair was just getting started and fair was maybe you could even think about it as like a research lab or a startup within this big company and my experience over there is yeah it was incredible because there are all these stories about like you know mark zuckerberg having the ai team sit right next to him those are all two we used to sit right where like the exact team was there and we would like be observers to all the meetings and everything that was going on over there and he at the end of the day sometimes he would just pop over and ask questions and maybe and he was also doing some projects at that point of time these side projects or like year long projects where i think back in 2015 his project was to build like an iron man kind of thing a speech recognition system or voice command system that you can you could do like household tasks for him and so it was kind of fun that the systems that he was using at that point of time to build his voice control assistant or whatever was actually the speech recognition systems that we were building at Fair and Facebook AI at that point of time and so yeah high visibility i would say but at the same time i think facebook is one of those very interesting companies at least back when i was there where it did not feel like a big company it felt like a startup the culture of a startup the leadership did an exceptional job in scaling and even until 2017 2018 there weren't like you know as many processes or bureaucracy in terms of getting things done yeah the, the goal was always to like you know just ship things if you have an argument don't waste time pontificating rather just build and ship and show me that things work and then yeah that's it and so i really enjoyed that culture where it was all about shipping so i would say that was probably the best part about facebook if i were to maybe say okay what wasn't great it was that sometimes you get so much lost into the weeds and details that maybe you don't zoom out and look at the big picture you maybe micro optimizing for certain metrics and you just keep on moving fast where you don't okay like consider all the potential issues that might crop up as you are making advancements on certain technologies or building certain things and so that has obviously manifested itself in different ways since then but Yeah, I think that environment was really awesome for builders the period that I was there and especially for AI researchers as well they were really well taken care of provided with all the resources. I remember there's one particular interaction between the CTO of Facebook and Ross Gershik who's a very famous uh, computer vision researcher like the builder of object detection some of the greatest object detection systems and it was at one of these gatherings Shrev came up and he basically said I would literally sweep the floor for you to do whatever you want and so that was a level of privilege or access to resources that you had as AI researchers had at Facebook at least when I was there. Is there a, is there a difference in the way that I guess AI you feel has been integrated into the products at Facebook versus at Google? 
It sounds like perhaps Google, and I realize that you're still there, so we can't just dive into the weeds, but I'm curious, just at a high level, do you feel that one has been a little bit more strategic or meticulous about the choices of when to adopt systems and Facebook maybe shooting a little bit more from the hip? Would you say maybe is a thematic difference in the way that those companies have integrated AI into their products? Yeah, it's super interesting. For a long period of time while I was at Facebook, we did... So the FAIR computer vision team was probably among the best. It still is the best. But there were many other areas where it was feeling like we were playing catch up to Google. So I was at Facebook when the when TensorFlow was released. And I remember one of the most amazing machine learning frameworks hacker just saying that, oh, this is something I wanted to build, but it would have taken me like another year. And if I were to like ask a fairy or a genie to bring me something and put it in front of my house, this is what I would want. And there were like similar reactions when, for example, the transformer paper came out, we were like all shocked. Oh my God, how well does this work? And at that point of time, I don't think people realized how important this transformer paper was going to be, but still it was quite obvious that this was going to change things. So for a long period of time at Facebook, it almost felt like we were like, catching up to Google, like all the inventions were mostly happening there, except maybe in computer vision. I think that has maybe changed a little bit now. FAIR has its own amazing research in a few areas. I think some of the work on proteins that has happened is really awesome. And also the work on embodied agents and habitat, the environment, I think that's all really cool. With respect to product integration, yeah, I think one of the cool things was PyTorch. There was this explicit goal of moving as fast as possible from research to production. So I remember like one of these conversations where I think it was probably Sumit Chantala or someone who wanted to say, I want to take the model from Kaiming here and put that into production in two weeks. And he actually went out and executed it. PyTorch enabled that. So when some of the mask RCNN models came out, I think in three to four weeks, it was in one of the internal build demos. So that was like really, really cool. And so Facebook had, at least on the computer vision side, built up this mechanism or like way to like productionize things really, really fast. And the, and I think PyTorch and Cafe both played a huge role, PyTorch more recently, but Cafe's role should not be, Cafe 2's role should not be underestimated. And then Yam Sinjia, who was there at that point of time, uh, along with Andrew Trollock and Sumit and a few others, they were all like incredible. And I think, I think Facebook was visionary on that front. TensorFlow is great, but I think the life cycle from research to production is probably longer than say with PyTorch, at least the version of PyTorch that I'm talking about back in 2017, 2018. And just with the computer vision, Facebook had that incredible advantage where they could like, you know, immediately ship things to the app straight from whatever, like timing here or Ross or other people that fair were cooking up. And I think that has slowly caught on in other fields as well with speech, with, but that I thought was incredible. That was visionary. Yeah, that's really cool. Cause actually a question I was going to ask, and maybe that partly answers it, but it's a challenge at these big companies when you have a kind of skunkworks team that's like doing very cool research and then you have like a completely different product team that's okay i'm in charge of like serving up a great newsfeed or something and then how do you move the insights and innovation from the skunkworks to that production side team how did that actually work I mean, and so obviously like from a technical perspective it sounds like pytorch made it easier there's still it's still like it's not it's easier but it's not free and then there's also like kind of a communication challenge because it's like oh well like what should the PMs be building. If you're in the research team, you might not exactly know what the product really needs and vice versa. People on the product side might not realize like the impact they could have with research. I'm curious about how that's been solved at places you've worked. And I'm also kind of curious about maybe your perspective on, on how it should work. Um, I think it 
depends on the goals of the research organization and the wider AI organization as well, right? So if the charter of the AI organization is to actually serve the bottom line of the company and be integrated into products as soon as possible, then yeah, for sure. I think you need to organizationally be aligned with this goal and build up everything like the communication systems, the infrastructure, everything to ensure that you can rapidly deploy and get feedback and improve the models as much as possible. And I wouldn't say this was uniformly happening throughout at Facebook, but the computer vision team was, I think, very unique in that sense because there were very good relationships between the FAIR researchers and the applied ML teams and as well as downstream customers. And they were all like pulling together in the same direction in the sense that they all wanted to have the latest and greatest advances you know, shipped in the apps as soon as possible. But in maybe some other areas like, you know, newsfeed ranking, I think it took a few years, for example, to transition over from some of the logistic regression models or even for ads to like deep neural nets. Obviously, there were like huge wins, huge lifts in metrics, but it wasn't like two weeks. It was more like two years. And I think that is both a mixture of how the organization is set up as well as maybe some of these areas you are a little bit more reticent to try good stuff because there's risk associated with it whereas some of the computer vision stuff for example were like more playful features or features where if you go wrong it's okay right whereas i think if you go wrong with your ads that hurts your bottom line so you probably don't want to screw that up and see what really want to be meticulous so at the end of the day i think if you really care about getting your innovation to people as soon as possible then i think at all levels of the organization you need to be aligned and one thing that really helped was i think that leadership was great i think they finally also reopened so that research and the applied ml teams were all like reporting to the same vp jerome and so i think that also really helped so yeah I think you have to be very intentional about your organization if you want to like move fast and deploy. And I think Facebook got that right for a long period of time. And on that topic, I'm curious, we're talking about an article where the application is medicine. And obviously what's at stake when you're giving people medical advice is it's, you know, equivalent, if not far more serious than anything having to do with the company's revenue. And what is the kind of ambitious context that maybe caused the research group at Google to pursue the application of medicine? What do you think was the sort of pie in the sky goal? Sure. Google has always been at the forefront of medical AI, along with, say, the Transformer paper and TensorFlow, one of the papers that I was really, really inspired by was this computer vision paper from like my current teammates, which showed that you could detect diabetic retinopathy from fundus images, uh, as well as like eye care specialists. And so that, I would say, was a very big personal moment for me as well, in the sense that Okay, that really, it showed me that with AI, we can do some amazing things in medicine. And it goes back to the same story where it is very obvious that healthcare systems worldwide have like different sets of challenges, but one of the key solutions to these challenges is tech and AI in particular. So in developing countries, there is just a shortage of like specialists and care providers and really the best way for us to be able to like scale world-class healthcare to everyone is through AI. And in places like the UK and the US, it's more that we do have providers, but their time is occupied in not providing care, but in everything else around it. And they are experiencing levels of burnout never seen before. And again, AI is the solution to help them have a much better experience in providing care. So yeah, and at Google, I think one of the great things is the, the investment in medical care has stayed consistent or increased over a period of time. Different efforts have been made and that is really inspiring for me. And I would even go out and say that the most important application of AI is medicine. And in the next decade, we are going to have a transformative impact using AI in medicine. I mean, one thing I was curious about is, you know, there's that challenge within a company of like, okay, how do you get the research moved into like production? In medicine, that's actually a way 
more complicated, right? I mean, so you have this diverse group of healthcare providers, you have certain companies that are investing deeply in, in medical AI or researchers that are investing in medical AI. And I'm curious, like you kind of got this front row seat, like what does that process look like? Like how does the research turn into clinical practice? It's definitely an interdisciplinary process, right? I think you can't just have engineers and machine learning scientists working on this. So if you look at our team, we have expertise. We have some of the best clinicians in the world who have worked. And it's not just from the US, but also UK and Australia and a bunch of other places. We have people who have expertise with respect to regulation, who have worked in DA or like equivalent bodies elsewhere. We have like legal folks and everything. And so you need all those perspectives to come in just because of the nature of the field that we are in. And I think it's a mix of what are the most interesting things that you can solve in this place, as well as, okay, we have this technology where we have this unique advantage or the superpower, and how do you, you know, make best use of that? And so at the intersection lies the magic, and that's why we kind of focus on, okay, find out what are the most interesting problems that you can solve with this technology that we have access to. And that's how we generally end up like picking the problems to solve uh, whatever projects that we work on. And generally, you are looking for the biggest impact that you can make. And so the kind of diseases that we go after, if you look at it, they're like, you know, diabetes or cancer or neurological diseases, which probably have the highest footprint across the world. So if you make a dent over there, then the quality impact, the quality of just life years that you can improve by, that's significant. And so that's how we end up choosing our projects or the work that we do. Yeah. Well, actually, here's another way to put it. Like, for example, if you think about the work that's already been done in AI with medical applications, what are some of the big wins so far? And like, how did those get into clinical practice? It's a great question. I don't think I would be wrong if I say that actually the promise of AI and medicine has not really translated into real world applications. There's been tons of research papers. I think there's a 150x increase in the number of research papers a year since 2016 in the medical AI field in particular. But if you look at say the number of clinical trials that's lagging behind. More recently, there have been quite a few FDA approvals, especially in radiology for using AI applications. But I would say with respect to the research and the promise and the hype, the translation hasn't necessarily been there. The ones maybe that are most prominent so far have been in medical imaging. And I think that's probably due to the paradigm of AI and deep learning that we've been using so far to build medical AI systems, which are still based on like supervised learning, acquiring large amounts of data and computer vision, at least till you know, GPT-3 came out, was probably the most advanced field of AI. And medical imaging had this nice cleaned up, I wouldn't, okay, not necessarily cleaned up by the natural image standards, but generally you had data numbering in the millions from different hospitals, probably easy to like homogenize and clean up. And so it was very well suited to the supervised learning paradigm. And so that's why you saw a lot of activity and momentum and applications in the medical imaging slash computer vision phase. And so I would say that's probably the most advanced. We've seen applications in radiology, you know, there are different startups doing like breast cancer detection models that are and lung cancer detection and then other modalities like the ophthalmology modality that I talked about, like diabetic retinopathy and a bunch of other eye diseases that you can predict from quantus images. Dermatology, I think there's a lot of startups and who are like building these apps that can diagnose your skin conditions from smartphone images. Ultrasound is another important modality that's becoming prominent just because of the cost-effective nature of the sensor. And so you can do a lot of interesting things with it. For example, recently from our team at Google, we showed that you could predict gestational age 
from ultrasound and you can do it very accurately. And so this is cool because it's a cheap sensor and it's a cheap model that you can put on the edge and give it to community health workers and you can like empower them. So they don't need to have access to an expert clinicians. Overall, I would say medical imaging has probably been the one field in AI, medical AI that has probably had the most set of advances with respect to the research that has been done, the number of papers, and also the number of products that maybe are going through or have gone through FDA approval and are so. That is there. I think EHR is another modality where people have been trying to come up with creative insights from your EHR data, typically in hospital, like ICU settings. But one of the challenges is if you work at a typical ICU, like we have this recording at Google where we just have something which shows like, what does it feel like to be in an ICU setting? And so there are like thousands of buzzes, right? And like every minute you're bombarded with notifications and everything. It's really, really challenging. And so if you have an AI system, you don't want it to add to the noise. Rather, it should give you a very unique insight. And that I think is still challenging. So I would say the applications on that front, like using EHR or to like predict you know, lab tests or medications or predict some interesting stuff like sepsis monitoring from records or something like that. I think that hasn't been successful or that successful just because of the nature of the problem and also the workflow. So it's important that you not only consider how good of a model that you can build, right? But it, I think the key aspect is also to consider the workflow that where the model will sit in. And so you can have a very amazing model, but if it is inappropriate in the workflow, then it's not going to be helpful at all. And I think that's the real challenge. Like if the research is done without, you know, accounting for perspectives of doctors or people who are actually on the ground, then you're going to miss out on this insight. A lot of research that has been done till date has probably missed out on this insight. And that includes things like, for example, selecting the operating point of your model. You want to ensure that you send in the right amount of alerts or notifications or do the right amount of recalls because anything less or more, you're adding more burden to the system rather than actually helping out. You know, we think about the application of models and the one thing that's a bit of takeaway for me is we often need a fairly risk tolerant or a fault tolerant setting because we need to be able to you know, ascertain when the models are making mistakes and we need to be able to offer points of intervention and confirmation from professionals who are practicing. I'm curious if we're thinking about the balance of kind of opportunity to improve people's health versus risk of making wrong decisions. We often, specifically for medicine, have a very conservative threshold and a conservative approach to this where we are very, very risk averse and not very opportunity seeking. And that might make sense in an environment like the United States, where these, as you mentioned before, the established system functions more or less in that people are able to get healthcare. And that's probably true in much of the industrialized world. But I'm curious if you think that in countries where the medical infrastructure is less established, if there's a benefit to being more opportunity seeking, even if that does potentially raise risks or the risk of making mistakes is sometimes higher. Yeah, great question. It's a hard one as well, right? I am all for more medical AI, but you want to be responsible as researchers. And so if, for example, you build a model only using data from Western institutions, and you're going to put that in, say, a place like Africa or India, it's pretty obvious it's not going to work. And that's irresponsible on your part. So if you have done the legwork where you've actually built a model, like used sourced diverse training data and actually validated in the appropriate settings and you've seen that it works, then yeah, for sure we should, I think, maybe dial down our risk tolerance a little bit more and be more proactive in terms of deploying these technologies. But 
yeah, with every opportunity comes responsibility and there is no free pass. I think you still have to do a good job at validating, but I'm with you. I think there is, I would say like there, there's a lot more opportunity maybe beyond the US or places with more established healthcare systems in terms of deploying these systems ahead of time and getting feedback later. And it's probably possible that you might actually see these countries adopt AI faster and make actually, and have a leapfrog in how the care is delivered in these countries. It's the same with, for example, the financial infrastructure, right? So 10 to 15 years back, I would say China and India were like lagging behind the US and credit cards were dominating in the US. But now I feel like US is further behind. I haven't been to China, but have heard stories. And in India, we don't have credit cards, but it's all digital. And the ease of doing transactions with micro transactions and macro transactions is order of magnitudes higher than in the US. And so it might, this is an opportunity for these countries as well. I feel like by adopting AI to have a leapfrog improvement in the healthcare systems, and maybe they go even above what's available in Western countries. And I can totally see that happening. I'm realizing that we've gotten this far into our conversation without describing what MedPalm actually does. So maybe for listeners out there, we should, what exactly is MedPalm doing? How do you interact with it? How does a researcher interact with it, given that it's not open to the public? So I will start off by giving the motivation for this work. Uh, obviously, large language models have been the rage in the wider AI community. And Medical AI in particular till date, if you look at a lot of the models that have been developed, those are all like narrow, single task, supervised AI systems. But on the other hand, medicine is an inherently human endeavor where language is at the center, facilitating interactions between patients, between clinicians, between researchers. And generally, if you ask like clinicians or patients who interact with medical AI in different settings, one of the chief complaints or concerns would be, oh, I wanted to better understand the model, I want to more interact with it. But all this model gives me is a prediction with a probability, and I don't understand why that model is giving me this prediction, right? So that needs to be solved if you want broader uptake of medical AI, and that can be solved through language-based interactions, and that's what language models helps us to do. So that was one of the, I would say, the chief motivation of this work, along with the fact that obviously there is this cool technology and we have access to these models. And if you look at the work in general, we have considered a broad variety of medical question answering tasks. These include like medical exam tasks, medical research questions, and also consumer medical question answering systems. And we wanted to benchmark and see, okay, how effective are these models in these different potential end user applications? And so the target user could be a medical student, could be a medical researcher, could be actually a consumer who has a medical information need. So that's where we started off. That was the motivation. And we had access to this model called Palm, which is amazing. It's not open sourced. I don't think it's going to get open sourced. But yeah, the, the paper is a way for us to like communicate and get feedback as to what we are doing. And I would say the results that we report with respect to like human performance in certain data sets, that is not maybe as important as say the evaluation benchmark that we are setting up or the different axes that we propose to evaluate the answers. And I think this is an iterative process which involves multiple rounds of dialogue between not just AI researchers, but also like clinicians, social scientists, ethicists, because I think medicine and even patients, and because ultimately at the end of the day, I think you require participation from all these folks if you want to really advance and accelerate the adoption of these technologies and models in medicine. And if you even leave out one community, then that's going to come back and bite us out. And so we want to ensure that, okay, this paper is not meant to, you have this fancy model. That's more like, you know, we have this model and this, these models are going to come. Now let's build them out in the right way so that it's applicable to all. I find it even interesting kind of the approach of training a model on medical data as opposed to say like you could give Palm access to a bunch of information that it would read and use to answer questions. And 
something that's kind of interesting there is kind of like distinction between approaches that involve embedding a lot of information in the model parameters versus having the information be external in some way. And how do you feel like that's going to end up coming together to make systems that are really useful and robust? I think it's always going to be a mix of both. It's this classic system one was a system two thinking or the debate that goes on, right? I don't think we can avoid uh, or it's one versus the other, rather it's a mix of both. Large language models are more of the system one kind. But I think over the next few months, over the next year, what you're going to see is more like retrieval style models, which are going to allow you to do more system two style thinking and inference. I think with these models, obviously, when you are training on internet corpus, internet text, there's obviously going to be medical content in there in different flavors. Some of them may be accurate, some of them may not be, but the model has seen this. So that's good because out of the box, we do see that these models can answer or they do understand medical terminology. So if you ask like a model, okay, can you explain this condition? Yeah, it, it does a decent response. But the challenge is really is an evolving field. And so there's always new research being published and new guidelines being published. And so you want to feed in that context information into the model and then teach the model how to use that context information or additional information and integrate that with what it already knows, which is encoded in the parameters of the model and then come up with the appropriate responses. And so, yeah, it's going to be a mix up with it. I don't think it's one versus the other. Yeah, what I was just you... wondering if there's like a way of thinking about it. Like, is it like kind of like, like one way to think about it could be like, oh, like, should I think about it like the vocabulary? Like, okay, I really need the model to have the right vocabulary and I can't just like teach it vocabulary in context very well. And so that's what I'm getting out of tuning it on the domain. Or is there more to it? Is there like different types of reasoning that happen in a medical domain? I mean, I know people have had this theory that like, oh, maybe chain of thought comes from code. And so like mm-hmm. training your model on code is important for that. You know, I'm just kind of curious, like what sorts of, things you feel like the model is really getting from the fine-tuning that you wouldn't be able to do from, say, context. So I, I want to clarify that the amount of fine-tuning that we do with the model over here, the Metcom model, is actually not that big. We're using an order of a few hundred examples, and we're doing prompt tuning, so it's not even the end-to-end model that's fine-tuned. It's just these additional soft prompt parameters that we learn. And our hope was that doing this would help condition the model. The uh, One of the assumptions that we have is a lot of the medical data is already encoded within the parameters of the model. But then at test time, you want to do two things. One is actually point the model to use that information. So this is like looking for a needle in the haystack. And so the model knows about science, it knows about you know random stuff on the internet, but you want to condition the model and tell that for these set of questions, use your medical information, use your clinical knowledge, right? And so that's one of the things that this helps with. And then the second thing is in the medical domain, there is a very unique way of answering things. There's a very unique way of reasoning about things. And we also want to encode that information as much as possible in these soft prompt vectors. And I don't think we've, yeah, it's possible that there's a limit to what you can achieve with these soft prompt vectors, because at the end of the day, it's still like a few hundred token millions of parameters. But at least the impression that I get is you can get the model to understand the stylistic nature of the domain. So if you look at the responses that the model generates, it's not overconfident, rather it's more subdued. It clearly says, this is what I know. Anything beyond this, you should probably go and seek specialist care. And it also learns to trim down the length of its responses because it knows that anything extra, which it's uncertain about, it could be incorrect and that could have downstream consequences. So those are the kind of stylistic natures of the domain that you can also encode. I think that's what is probably happening more. It's yeah. not knowledge that's encoded in these soft compactors. It's more like conditioning to work well within the domain. 
I'm curious, are there any techniques that you're really excited about for grounding things in sort of external information? So for instance, teaching these things to basically not rely on their system one thinking, but to kind of know, oh, I do need to go fetch this. I do need to go look this up and verify that. Are there any approaches to that that you are particularly excited about or you think are going to make progress on these problems? Sure. I think there's been a class of models which point to this direction, WebGPT, Retro, and a few others, and been demos from like a few startups, Neva and Perplexity as well, which going towards getting, like using search and using that as additional context to answer questions, and then also citing and attributing the sources. And so there are a few different approaches, but I think overall they're kind of all the same, retrieve the right information, feed that into the model, and let the model integrate that information with whatever it's already encoded in the parameters already. I think the cool part is it seems to me that teaching this kind of behavior to these LLMs is probably quite data efficient. You don't require a lot of examples. It seems like even with like maybe a few hundred or a few thousand examples, you can teach the model to learn this generalized behavior. So that seems pretty cool. And so this goes down into tool use, right? And search and retrieval is one of the tools that's in the, in the model's repertoire. But you can also imagine this being generalized to say any expert in the loop. And that expert could be a human in the loop, or it could be another AI, or it could be anything else. It could be a calculator, for example. For me, the most exciting part is it feels like this kind of behavior is learnable without a lot of examples. And it also generalizes. But I think, yeah, we need some research papers or maybe someone at Google or OpenAI will publish this, but I feel like that's one of the cool things that's coming up right now. When you're choosing your instruction examples, are there domains where you expect this to be deployed that you're disproportionately representing or choosing from? So it's like, we don't literally need the model to take the MCAT, right? I mean, it's impressive if it's good at the MCAT, but we kind of want to potentially deploy this in a clinical setting. I, I mean, are you imagining like doctor is like wanting to double check their understanding of a certain condition. And so they're, they're going to potentially ask the model, I was wondering if this medication interacts with that medication or like I'm doing a diagnosis here, but I have a kind of strange combination of symptoms. Like, what do you think? Like, what specifically are you imagining are, are the clinical application dialogues? Yeah, I think there are a fair few intended potential applications over here. Probably the ones that we'll see the earliest are more like educational aids to like researchers and students and trainees. And I think we are already seeing evidence of chat GPT being used for like educational purposes. And I have actually learned a few topics just by interacting yeah. with it. And you can imagine this happening in the medical domain quite a lot, especially with a model that's specialized to that. So I feel like those sort of use cases where which are non-diagnostic and that means also not safety critical are going to be the first that we will see and probably they'll happen in a few months. The second set of application is around like aiding researchers and scientists with respect to information retrieval and you know, citations and similar stuff. I think that that could also be incredibly powerful. Like if I am writing a paper and if a model could retrieve like 10 most related papers with respect to this paragraph, yeah. that'll make my job really easy because right now, like I think with every time before a paper deadline, the math scramble is to get your references right. And it takes a few hours. I think a model that can do that and summarize it will be amazing. I think that will be a game changer for researchers and not just medical researchers, but like all kinds of researchers and scientists. I think the final set of applications you would see are more in clinical settings. And again, I think this is going to be different. There are going to be certain applications and clinical workflows, which might maybe involve like stacking information from notes or different documents in clinical settings and summarizing them either to patients or maybe to the doctors themselves or people who are working in those settings and like just giving them a very simple intuitive interface to the data under the hood and not like the clunky systems that they have right now. Again, that I feel could happen to 
year timeline, we could see a lot of different applications. I think we're already seeing a lot of interest from healthcare companies in using these models to do such things. And also there's a lot of documentation that clinicians generate that are all like fairly templatized, all non-diagnostic, but those can also be automated and have an LM generate a summary or like a prescription or like a medication authorization letter or referral letter. So again, those sort of applications completely non-diagnostic, totally possible that those things happen within again a two-year time frame, if not less. Diagnostic is further down the line. And I think first set of applications we would see would be where there is a like a human in the loop, a clinician in the loop. And it would more be like an information aid system for them where they like have a chat interface to like a, a database or Similar to Google search, but like a more interactive conversational system where they can ask about interactions of the medicine or like an interface to EHR records, right? I think those are the kind of applications we would see first. And I think ultimately down the line, we'll have more diagnostic systems where it's going to be like an AI and maybe a clinician or an AI alone coming up with diagnosis based on all the contextual information. But that I feel is further down the line. I mean, we have all this research and I hope this all gets translated very soon, but I feel like it's probably a few years away just because of the number of challenges that we have to solve before we get there. Back in 2020, I'm pulling back from your tweet history here. You stated an opinion, you shared an opinion that some of these applications, the publicly accessible LLMs might be doing more harm than good. And I think that probably at the time you had in mind the potential to be a source of misinformation, be a source of deep fakes, all that sort of stuff. I'm curious if you're thinking about these things. And obviously, since then, chat GPT has completely exploded. There's a brand new generation of interest in the applications of these models. Are there, uh, do you still feel like the, that sort of sense of caution? I mean, obviously Google has been very ca- cautious about releasing any of its LLMs to the public. There's obviously a very storied history of Microsoft and Facebook having to kind of take models offline because of how quickly they become negative. What do you think about the potential of these things to be open in the public as the APIs? It's interesting, and I'm glad you pulled that out. I would say I was a bit naive with that. I was assuming the worst, and maybe that hasn't necessarily happened. Stable diffusion is a very good example of that. A model that's out there openly, and people are using it mostly for creative applications. I haven't heard horror stories or anything about that. And so that does point to a future when maybe these models can be open. And honestly, I would love for these models to be open and democratized, but it's it would be naive to assume everything is good and everyone has good intentions and just open source because that's not true. And so it's very important that you consider what can go wrong and different organizations have different levels of risk tolerance. And maybe if you're a startup, you don't worry about that so much because you're not going to be a legal target. But if you're a big tech company, obviously you have to worry about it a lot. So yeah, I've been very pleasantly surprised by how stable diffusion has gone and how GPT-3 has also been put to use. But maybe that also has got to do with the fact that these models, yeah, I mean, it's all over your Twitter feed, my Twitter feed, but that's a very small fraction of the people who interact with tech or or on the internet. It's still probably like 0.1% or even less than that. So it's not a mass adoption or a mass feature just yet. Yeah, it's hard for me to know to predict how exactly someone in India or like in some other part of the world who is maybe five years behind what we are, how would they use these technologies? And it's very likely that people are all going to put this to like amazing use cases. And I hope that is the case, but we need to also at the same time be aware of what can go wrong and build tools and systems to ensure that that happens as little as possible so that we can be more open and democratic about these systems because these are amazing. The more people we can get them like these into the hands of, that's amazing. Actually, just maybe one final point over here. I actually don't know how things are going to evolve because it also feels there are these two competing forces. One is this open AI model, or maybe you can even say Google's model is where it's the model central 
sitting in some server or some in some cloud somewhere. And then if you look at Apple, on the other hand, they're trying to put like stable diffusion kind of models on the phone. And so those seem to be two competing trends with respect to how these models are going to evolve. LLMs are a different beast. I think stable diffusion, I could, didn't expect that model could be compressed and put on the phone so quickly, but that did happen. But LLM, I think, would be a little bit more tricky to do that. And so it may also be like which technology wins out, because if you can have like a personal component of your LLM sitting on your phone, then that's really cool. And that's another way of democratizing this technology and having access to more people. And that might end up happening. Ultimately, something that's interesting about Google's deployment strategy is they've been very public actually about what they're doing. So they have these papers, they have not released parameters, which is pretty understandable for most models with a couple exceptions. Like I'm kind of excited about Flan T5, for example, it's cool that they released those parameters. They haven't really released like a product in the way that say OpenAI has. How is Google hoping to have a big impact in the world with the approach they have of not really releasing models either for inference or the parameters? I think it's hard to predict how things would evolve. But if you look at it, OpenAI has also not released any of their model parameters. It's an API. I would say it's very hard to predict. I think what big tech companies in general have is distribution. And yeah. so perhaps what they're all going to be looking at is how do we integrate it into our existing suite of products and just make them more delightful and more magical for people to use. And that might mean a different strategy for a Meta or a Microsoft or a Google because they all own different kinds of services, different kinds of products. Cloud is a different question over here. I think people would be hoping that these models stay more centralized and you have a lot more cloud customers and that's probably a very natural evolution of cloud. But I don't know if that will necessarily play out just looking at how stable diffusion has evolved. I think what we need to watch out for is how quickly is there a chat GPT equivalent, which is open source. And if that comes out very soon before say a GPT-4 comes out, then I think the trends are kind of obvious, but that might also, what that might also trigger is maybe OpenAI would want to talk even less about its research and be more secretive. And that's not great for all. And that might further slow down the open source replication, but open source is this amazing thing. I mean, distributed people working from, hey, we're just coming together and creating, I think that it's, so it's hard to predict how open source dynamics and things will evolve, but I think that's the one thing that I would watch out for. Like how quickly do we get a chat GPT equivalent? And if that comes out rather soon, performing as good as say whatever we have right now, then I think that changes the calculus for everyone. I think so people are just like at this point of time, still not sure. And it's mostly a wait and watch game uh, for everyone, uh, not just Google, but for all the big yeah, right. So you've been able to play with Google's internal tools and you've also obviously have played with chat GPT. I just want to know just from your subjective opinion, which one's cooler? But I also, after you answer that question, I want to know what brought you to SPC? How did you find yourself becoming a member of SPC? I think ChatGPT is awesome. For me, it was one of the most magical experiences that I've had with AI. So I was working on conversational AI five years back. And one of the projects that I was tasked with at that point of time was to build a system that can help you set an alarm. And what that entailed was me writing out thousands of rules and thousands of different ways in which someone can say set an alarm and one night i just said i don't want to work in conversation with ai anymore because it's not going to scale yeah. and so if at that point of time you had told me that in five years we're going to have this chat gpt kind of system i would have said you're kidding me and so for me that just thinking where we were as a field and nlp was far behind computer vision at that point of time to where we are right now i think this is one of the most incredible advances that i've ever seen i can't really compare with google systems but uh, i can just say that chat gpt is incredible and uh, i hope to see more and more of these systems and with respect to spc um no, it's just an incredible community i felt i've always wanted to be 
a part of SPC. I knew people who are at OpenAI or DeepMind. I got a lot of the people who were very early into deep learning and AI back in 2016, 2017. I know that they have, they have SPC groups and connections. So the community have always found it interesting and exciting. And so that was one of the motivations just to meet more interesting people and share knowledge, learn about what people are doing and also be exposed to opportunities. I've had this like pretty incredible opportunity to work with a few nonprofits. One of them that come to mind is Rocket Learning in India, which is trying to scale education, primary care education to school children. And through SPC, I got connected to them and I've been advising them on some of their, like using AI in their product stack. And we've been using, trying to use that for grading assignments, but we want to do more personalized content generation and curriculum generation and so on and so forth. And again, just similar to medicine, I think, yeah, it's going to have a huge impact on education, or maybe even sooner. So those sort of opportunities where you have this domain expertise that you have built in, if you can share it more freely, like with people who are trying to do some incredible things in the world, I think that's one of the unique value props that SPC has, where people are trying to do amazing things. And you can tag along on the journey. And it could be directly as a co-founder, or it could also be like more indirectly where you're an advisor. And sometimes all you need is maybe just a few hours where you just say, oh, you know, take this model and do this thing. And I've had a few of those interactions as well, where people have come back and said, oh, you saved days and months for me. And so those sort of things. And it's the same reverse as well, where we call SVC, if you're going minus one to zero, right? And you're looking for new ideas. And for me, beyond medicine and AI, I am very interested in biotechnology. And I actually think that the next few decades, that is the decade of bio and AI. And a few people have said this before. The amount of biological data that we are generating and how, for example, our sequencing technology has progressed, it's progressing faster, for example. I think like all levels of the stack, the single cell data to clinical data, genomics data. So this incredibly rich amount of data that's being generated and biology is messy enough that you can't have like hard rules like math or physics. The perfect description language for that is AI. And for me, SPC felt like a very natural place to engage and learn more about this field. And I've been fortunate enough to meet like a few people who have broad expertise in bio, biotech. And so that's been amazing as well. We are putting together a tech bio forum now. It's coming up later this month where we're going to host like a series of talks from researchers, founders, venture capitalists in the biotech space. And the hope is like XPC becomes uh, also the go-to place for people who are interested about biotech as much as say about AI and crypto. And if that happens, I would be really delighted. I think that would make my time at SPC really worthwhile. And hopefully, I think there's connections and networks the day I go down the entrepreneurial path, I don't have to look too far to find a co-founder. We're glad you're here, Vivek. Thank you so much for being part of our show today. And thank you so much for staying and answering some of the great questions. We'd like to finish things up with asking you for a recommendation on something you're either reading, watching, listening to, what is one recommendation you'd give people that are listening to you now? Actually, the book that I'm reading right now is a neuroscience textbook. So maybe I'll stay away from recommending that to people. I think our last- Sounds like a good one. Oh, yeah, the last interview may have also recommended a textbook. Principles of Neural Design. That's uh, maybe it's blood, but yeah. Yeah, I'm super interested in your neuroscience and trying to get inspiration, building more low power AI systems, because while I work at a place which promotes large models, I like just looking at how the human body is engineered, how low power it is, how efficient it is, I think we can do better. And so just trying to get more inspiration. So yeah, but I don't know if that's for a general audience though. That's fine. I think this is an audience of a lot of nerds, so it'll fall in familiar ears. Yeah, sounds cool to me. It's great to know. Maybe we should do a reading group session for this one. I don't know.
Yeah, you should make a SPC forum about neuroscience. That'd be amazing. This is why SPC is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks so much for being part of a part of Pioneer Park. We're so happy to have spoke with you today. Uh, thank you so much. This was great. And as I said, the reason for being at SPC is the, the opportunity to have these kind of interactions where we can go deep into certain topics or learn more about stuff and with the peer group and the peer network. I'm just glad that we have SVC and I hope like more smart people decide to come and join us over here. Thanks so much, Vivek. Thanks, John. Thanks, Brian. Take care. See you around. Bye.